Welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. I'm Richard Nelson, your host. Abortion was one of the top issues in the recent election for Kentucky governor. And interestingly, it was a Democratic pro-abortion candidate, Andy Bashir, who focused on difficult circumstances of how a person's conceived, and he convinced a majority of voters to vote for him. So what is the Christian response to abortion? How do we respond to difficult cases of rape and incest? Should there be exceptions, allowing a woman to abort her child if she was raped? Joining us to talk further about this important issue is Scott Klusendorf, president of the Life Training Institute, where he trains pro-life advocates to persuasively defend their views. The second edition of his book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture, was released just last week. And that's the topic of our conversation today. Scott, welcome to the Commonwealth Matters. Richard, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Scott, you have been a leader in the pro-life movement for a number of years. I recall your name a long time ago, decades ago, and you have articulated a well-thought-out, principled uh, biblical view on uh, the sanctity of life. I'm going to start out with this. The pro-life movement has changed after the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade. I guess I'll start with this. Did you ever expect Roe v. Wade to be overturned in your lifetime? You know, I kind of did, because although I'm grateful for the decision on a pro-life perspective, just from a judicial standpoint, it was horribly reasoned. And it was only a matter of time before level heads won the day and said, look, you cannot sustain the faulty reasoning of Roe, and therefore it got struck. I wish the court had gone further and actually talked about the humanity of the unborn, and ideally it would have been great if the court at least made mention of the natural right to life of the unborn, thereby setting up a stage for us to go for greater protections. Now, of course, a lot of people viewed Dobbs as banning abortion across the country. That was not true. It simply struck down the federalization of abortion on demand. It sent this issue back to the states. And uh, last year, we saw this issue at the ballot box in Michigan, Montana, Kentucky, and we lost in Kansas as well. Thank you. And we lost. And then this election cycle, we lost uh, as well in Ohio, where they put abortion rights uh, as part of their constitution. They essentially made it a fundamental constitutional right in Ohio. Here in the Commonwealth of Kentucky, as I just mentioned, we had a Democratic, very pro-abortion governor who won on the issue of exceptions. Um, Scott, he ran an ad of of a young woman in her 20s who unfortunately was raped when she was just 12 years old by her stepfather, repeatedly raped. Horrible situation. Just terrible to hear that ad. There was pain in her voice. It was traumatic for her, obviously. But Governor Bashir ran this ad, and he convinced a lot of people that, you know what, Republicans and pro-life policies don't address difficult cases of rape and incest. Uh, Now we have Republican leaders in the House and Senate talking about adding exceptions to our pro-life laws. Kentucky is one of 14 states, I believe, that is totally pro-life, where we do not have abortion clinics, uh, nor do we have exceptions. So I guess there's there's a lot there. One is, have we been caught flat-footed? Let's start with this. After the Dobbs decision, have we been caught flat-footed in the pro-life movement? Well, yes and no. Uh, Here's why I say yes. 
Yes, because we now realize our biggest problem was not hostile courts, a hostile media, or a marketing problem where our messaging somehow wasn't connecting. The problem is this. We face a worldview challenge. The overwhelming majority of Americans do not agree with us, even in deep red states like Ohio and Kentucky, Kansas, and Montana. I mean, in Montana, for goodness sakes, we couldn't even get voters to ban, uh, or I should say, we couldn't even get voters to protect infants who survive abortion procedures. That's in a red state, Montana. That tells us we face a worldview challenge. And I grow weary of pro-lifers who say things like, well, this vote in Ohio doesn't reflect the values of Ohio. Yes, it does. That's why they voted for issue one, because they support abortion. And the pro-life movement needs a real strong wake-up call that until we start addressing abortion at the worldview level with our fellow citizens, we're going to continue to lose. And by the way, we got 11 more states coming up here pretty soon with ballot measures dealing directly with abortion. We're going to lose all of them, barring a miracle and a change of course of action here. The Republican candidate, Daniel Cameron, Republican candidate for governor, was totally pro-life. He defended Kentucky's pro-life law in various courts at the state and federal level, and he was put on the spot uh, early on in this election. And at one point, Scott, he backed off and said, look, if the legislature gives me a bill with exceptions, rape and incest exceptions, I'll sign it. I observed a couple things. One is it was not consistent with his pro-life, principled pro-life positions. Number two, it demoralized the uh, pro-life movement in Kentucky. I had personal conversations with legislators who were frustrated and demoralized. And this is not an attack, by the way, on Daniel Cameron. I think he's a good man, principled man. But here's the third observation. He was getting bad advice and bad counsel to back away from that issue. And they did not respond to the pro-abortion ads that Governor Bashir was running. What would have been your advice to a Daniel Cameron pro-life candidate or governor, especially in response to that, the rape ad that was run? Well, in general, what I say to politicians is you need a seven-second soundbite to defend your pro-life position because that's all you're going to get on the local news. And here's the seven-second soundbite I wish every pro-life candidate would use. I am against abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings. Stop, rinse, repeat a million times. Notice that short soundbite conveys the moral logic of our view very clearly, and it doesn't allow you to get sidetracked on other issues where they want to trip you up. And when they come back and say, what about rape? What about this? What about that? The candidate should look the journalist in the eye and said, you heard what I said. I oppose abortion because it's wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Say nothing more. You know, a candidate can survive not saying more. He doesn't survive or she won't survive if they say too much and get trapped on a, a thorny point. Keep the main thing the main thing. I love your response. It is factual. It is principled and it's to the point and it's conveyed in seven seconds or less. And yet, unfortunately, that was not the case. His campaign really suffered because of that lack of response. Kamala Policy Center, by the way, did a couple of ads with women who, one who was conceived in rape, woman by the name of Brittany Bogard. And she shared her story very briefly as to the fact that her mother did not abort her and saw the humanity that she had, even though she, her child, Brittany, was conceived in rape, even though the situation, was horrific of conception. Her mother 
gave her life, and she was grateful for that. And we think that this ad did help to turn voters in the pro-life direction. The other ad that we ran, Scott, was regarding an issue that you just brought up in Montana. It was the Born Alive Infants Protection Act, which simply acknowledged that there's a life, if it miraculously survives an abortion, and if that life is human life is alive, it required protection and care for that unborn child. We brought in uh, Robin Sertel from Montana to do an ad for us as well. Again, we focused on the humanity of uh, the unborn child, regardless of the situation that they were conceived in or if they survived an abortion. Scott, I'm wondering, is there anything else that could have been done in the, in the electoral context, in the political context, to win over hearts and minds on this issue? Is there another ad that we, we might be missing or another story that we might be missing out there as we try to help voters to see the humanity of the unborn and then decide with the idea that, that the unborn should be protected in law? Well, I'm always reluctant to second guess the good, hardworking efforts of the people on the ground in a given state who work their butts off to try to starve off disasters. So I, I don't know that I have a specific thing I want to say, but I will say this. Generally, nationally, there are some disturbing trends within the pro-life cause that give me great concern, and they, they come down to these. Number one, we've got to wake up and understand we're in a worldview fight. People don't don't vote pro-abortion because they dislike pro-lifers. They vote pro-abortion because they disagree with us on the humanity of the unborn and the inhumanity of abortion. And until those two issues are brought to the spotlight, we're going to continue to have trouble. Uh, secondly, we have got a problem in many pro-life circles where they are joining Planned Parenthood covering up the evil of abortion. They don't want to show the abortion pictures. They don't want to be clear about what abortion is. They don't want to talk candidly about it. Well, this is the worst thing we could do. What social reform movement has ever won by covering up the very evil it opposes? And the answer is none. So we've got to get more courageous and willing to take the fight with a frontal assault to our opponents and say, when you talk about choice, this is what the choice is you're offering. And make sure the public understands that and knows that. Uh, a third thing, we've got a problem with our churches. Our churches are silent on this issue. They're not engaged. How do we think we're going to win the public when we can't even win our churches to talk candidly about what abortion is? Very disturbing trend. And of course, uh, it was disturbing what happened in Ohio that we went to direct democracy as a means of deciding this issue, rather than working through our constitutional method, which is our elected representatives. Our founders didn't want us to be a direct democracy because they knew the tyranny of the majority could end up forcing uh, itself on minorities and strip them of their natural rights. That's a big problem. I think that needs to be brought to the public. Uh, We've got to establish a beachhead on one of these upcoming states where we win. And I don't think we're going to win by running from the abortion issue and trying to say, well, we'll modify our position. No, the thing to do is to be very forthright. Abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being and demonstrate that with words and pictures. A colleague of mine puts it real well, Greg Cunningham, former Pennsylvania House member. He said, when you show pictures of abortion, abortion protests itself. The reason why these ads involving hard cases like rape or incest resonate with the public 
is because the public does not believe that unborn humans are are one of us. They think they're blobs, they're tissues, they're they're something subhuman, some other kind of sui generis creature. Well, if you believe the unborn are human, you right away recognize that hardship doesn't justify homicide. You can't intentionally kill an innocent human being because they remind you of something painful. Nobody kills two-year-olds for those reasons if they have a functioning conscience. They only kill their unborn that way because they believe they're not human the way the two-year-old is or the way the five-year-old is. So we've got to stick to the main thing, which is abortion is wrong because it intentionally kills an innocent human being. Very good. Very, very well said. Scott, you had mentioned that this this issue of abortion and the sanctity of life is really a worldview issue. We live in a secular age. It is a post-Christian age where Christians are in the minority in this country. It's a post-truth age where you hear, hear terms like, well, that's your truth. Scott Klusendorf, that's your truth about the belief of the unborn. But here's my truth. Regarding the life issue, there's terms that are new to my ears, and I've been involved with the pro-life movement for 30 years. We hear terms such as forced birthing or get your religion out of my uterus. And as shallow as those phrases are, they're taking hold in our culture, especially with younger people. There uh, There was a survey done of millennials and Gen Zs who really believe that abortion is some kind of, and this is a recent uh, survey I'm familiar with, that this is some, it should be left up to the mother, that the state shouldn't be involved with this. How do we respond to that shallow thinking? It's effective, it has shock value. You shouldn't force a birth on somebody or get your religion out of my personal life. How do we respond? How do we respond with those very practical questions? Well, just a quick response. I mean, anytime somebody uses this forced idea, It's a silly argument. I mean, are laws against drunk driving forced sobriety, for example? Are laws against rape forced chastity? I mean, it's a silly argument. But beyond that, again, people make these claims and they resonate with the majority of our citizens because a majority of our citizens do not agree with us on the foundational worldview issue, and that is, what is the unborn? They don't think the unborn are one of us. The abortion debate is not about who loves women and who hates them. It's not about forcing one's morality. It's not about religion. It's about the question, are the unborn one of us? We say, yes, they are. The majority of Americans say, no, they're not. And that's why we're losing. That's the big issue going on here. If you're just joining us, I'm Richard Nelson here with Scott Klusendorf, who is the author of The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. If you are enjoying this podcast, then please go to your favorite podcast platform and rate us. This is one of the ways that you can help our podcast audience grow. Also, please tell a friend about us. You can share the Commonwealth Matters on your social media platforms as well. Thanks again for listening to the Commonwealth Matters. Welcome back to the Commonwealth Matters. Richard Nelson here with Scott Klusendorf, and we are talking about public policy and abortion. Unfortunately, Kentucky suffered a defeat at the ballot box where we had a pro-abortion governor, Andy Bashir, who won his re-election for a second term to the governorship by close to five percentage points, and abortion rights were a top issue. This is the first time I have seen a Democrat pro-abortion candidate run and win on exceptions uh, to abortion. And this is an issue that will come up in this next legislative session. A number of Republicans 
are in favor of adding exceptions. Scott, what's troubling to me when I hear about pro-life people or the pro-life party talking about exceptions is that it compromises their principled position. In fact, I've heard really disturbing news about one of the largest pro-life organizations in the country talking publicly about exceptions, uh, not going back to the idea that uh, uh, human life is begins at conception and that human life should be protected. What do we do when there's confusion in our camp, in the pro-life camp, when you have large organizations that are compromising on this issue? Do you have any recommendations for what we need to do? Do we need to start afresh? Well, it's one thing, it's one thing if a political candidate doesn't have the votes to protect all unborn children, so he signs legislation to protect as many as he can, given the current political realities. But it's quite another when you have the ability to protect all children and you don't do it because you don't want to look unfavorable to voters. That's compromise. If you don't have the votes, you do the greatest good you can, given what you have to work with. So you save 80%, even though you, you want to save 100 you sign a bill to save 80 and you keep coming back for more. You never quit. But I'm like you. I'm bothered by people who say, listen, let's give up our principle that each and every human being has an equal right to life here so that we can win elections. That's bad thinking. That's compromise. I can't go there. That's very different, though, as I mentioned a moment ago, from the politician who wants to protect all unborn children, but simply isn't in a political environment where he has the resources or the votes to do it. If he signs a bill protecting most children, an incremental bill, he's not compromising. But when you have the ability to protect all unborn humans, and in a post-Roe world, we should be more aggressive with our bills and trying to protect more children than we have previously, now that we got Roe out of the way, when you have the ability to protect all and you won't do it, that's a problem. Scott, how do you respond to this new idea uh, that pregnancy is a moral wrong. Now, this is the extreme pro-abortion movement that is views the unborn child as invasive, intrusive, that having a child would ruin a woman's life. In fact, there was a professor, I think the University of Chicago, that was trying to make the case that women are disadvantaged financially if they have that child. And we have this radical thinking when you uh, see a new human life as being to jeopardize uh, the mother or to be a harm on society. I've seen other studies and people try to pr promote that idea that this is a harm, that we were, we're, look, we're overpopulated and this harms women. And this is, these are new arguments to me. And it just, it is uh, disorienting to you and I, pro-lifers who've been involved with this for so long. It just at, at the outset is just seems so wrong. And yet these ideas are gaining a foothold in our culture. So how do we, I guess we'll go back to this. How do we respond to the idea that pregnancy is a moral wrong and hurts women? Well, this idea that, that unborn humans are expensive, guess what? Teenagers are expensive. Can we kill them? As far as being unwanted, the homeless are unwanted. Can we kill them? Notice that all of these arguments assume the unborn aren't human. They don't argue for it. They just assume it. And the mistake a lot of pro-lifers make is they don't uncover that assumption. They go ahead and bite debate, and they end up debating about whether a baby is expensive or not. That's a losing debate for our side. Babies are expensive. All children are expensive. I got news for you. They cost you a lot of money throughout 18 years. Very 
problematic, though, when we allow the assumption that the unborn are not human to drive the debate. Scott, I, I'm a father. I've got four children, and I agree 100%. Children are expensive. I got four as well, and they aren't cheap. Uh, wouldn't you agree with me? In fact, unless you're a parent, I don't know if you could relate to this, but have starting a family, having children is one of the most significant and positive life-changing events you'll ever have. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's not inexpensive. But as far as changing who you are as a parent, as a person, and I'm speaking personally, and I suspect this is, I, I think this is true. I think this is how we're wired. When you begin a family and when there's a new human being that comes into existence that you are caring for and providing for, there is uh, incredible, it's amazing, and there's incredible growth of the soul when that happens, when you intentionally parent well, and when you... And you're absolutely right about that. No doubt about it, Richard, but I'm not sure that's the best way to approach that objection, and here's why. Uh, another person can come along and say, having kids destroyed my life. My kids were awful. They got into trouble. I wish I'd never had them. And if it becomes a battle of subjective stories or just subjective preferences, we've bought right into the worldview that makes abortion plausible, that being relativism, the idea that only personal perspectives matters. In a postmodern world where truth is viewed according to personal perspectives, we need to make an objective case for why it's wrong to intentionally kill the unborn. And that objective case can be stated in seven seconds, as we talked about earlier. It is wrong to intentionally kill innocent human beings, and that's exactly what abortion does. That's why we oppose it. We've got to stick to that objective truth claim. We can use the subjective arguments, but they should be secondary, not primary. We can say, oh, by the way, not only is it wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being, having children actually adds a lot of flourishing and development in your life that is good for you and for society. We can make that argument, but it's our secondary pitch, not our primary one. Well said, and I agree 100%. 100%. Scott, you had mentioned just a, a few moments ago that the state of the pro-life movement after several defeats at the ballot box is uh, we're in disarray. You mentioned there's 11 ballot initiatives coming up. Are there groups that you're working with that have found the way you just told us the seven-second soundbite? But what can these pro-life groups do? And I would put Commonwealth Policy Center in that movement. What can we be doing to, again, help equip our people to think through these issues? The other side, quite frankly, is better funded. Planned Parenthood and the ACLU has been pouring millions of dollars into these pro-abortion campaigns. We know in Ohio, they spent twice as much that the pro-life side put into their cause. Their ads are compelling and they're winning over voters. Are there some groups out there that are leading the way? Well, first of all, just on the issue of money, evil will always have better funding than the good. That's just the nature of it. Uh, Martin Luther King was chronically underfunded, yet his side won the civil rights debate because they were able to take their arguments directly to the American people, make them persuasively. It took time, but they won. And the pro-life side has got to do the same thing. It's a long road. It's not a quick fix. I think there's this tendency in pro-life circles to think if we could just get the right soundbite, the right ad, the right celebrity to speak for us, we'd win. And that's not true. We've got to change the thinking of our fellow citizens. There are groups out there doing excellent work. 
uh, Life Training Institute, my organization, we go into schools, Catholic and Protestant high schools, and do large assemblies with high school students, not on abstinence, though we support groups that do, not on post-abortion testimonies, though we support groups that do. We go in and we give these kids a case for the pro-life view. Here's why it's true and reasonable to believe. They've never heard it, Richard. We think that a lot of people have heard the pro-life argument. No, they have not. They don't even know what it is. They've never heard it. They're not hearing it at their churches. They're not hearing it in their schools. They're not hearing it from mom and dad at home. So we go in and we give them that argument. There's other groups out there like Created Equal in Ohio that are doing terrific work showing the abortion imagery. Center for Bioethical Reform is doing great work on college campuses showing the reality of what abortion is. And that's what gets to the heart of the matter here. You'd mentioned churches. Churches are failing to address this issue. Pastors in particular are failing to speak to this issue. What my what I've seen in Kentucky is that many pastors were not involved with speaking to the election coming up or to important issues in the election. And their response is, well, that's political. We're going to stay away from politics. How do you respond to that? Well, what kind of Christianity is it that says, my worldview applies to everything but the political realm. No, Christianity applies to all of life. It's total truth for every realm, including the political realm. Now, I'm not saying a pastor has to stand up and turn his sermons into political rallies. That's not my point. But if you think a biblical worldview does not apply to the intentional killing of innocent human beings in the womb, there's something wrong with your Christian worldview. And quite frankly, you should resign your pulpit and go back to school and learn some things. Uh, I imagine, imagine this, imagine if a pastor were a slave, an African slave on a slave ship outside Charleston Harbor in 1860. I think that slave would be praying very hard for his fellow Christians to get politically active and do something about his condition. Uh, if, if we think that the biblical worldview has nothing to say to injustice in our day, uh, we're just wrong. All issues become politicized, all of them. Slavery became politicized, segregation became politicized, abortion became politicized. That is no excuse to sit by and do nothing while children are intentionally slaughtered. Well said, Scott. That's powerful. And many pastors will be listening to this program. Uh, Scott Klusendorf, thank you so much for tuning in. Your book, The Case for Life, Equipping Christians to Engage the Culture, is uh, a, it's a gem. Uh, well-written. I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read, gleaned through some of it. Where can people find your book, Scott? They can get this at Amazon. They can get it at Crossway. One other thing, Richard, I don't want to just attack pastors. I want to give them a game plan. And in the book, I actually give them a game plan for what a pro-life church looks like. And I give them benchmarks for aiming at making that happen by applying a biblical worldview to their ministries. If you're just joining us, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Matters talking with Scott Klusendorf. If you've enjoyed this program, please uh, share it with a friend. Rate us on any of the uh, podcast platforms that you listen to us on. And thank you for tuning in. Scott Klusendorf, thank you so much for your time. Let's do this again. Thank you, Richard. Hi, Richard Nelson here with the Commonwealth Policy Center. It's clear that the news media isn't always fair. In fact, there's lots of far-left bias and political gamesmanship. No surprise there. So if you're looking for a perspective that's grounded in the truth of Scripture and our nation's founding principles, then get plugged into CPC's resources. Sign up for our e-newsletter at commonwealthpolicycenter.org. You can also follow us on Facebook at Commonwealth Policy Center. 
and we're on Twitter at CPC4Kentucky.